Welcome to not the Spin Trip podcast. Uh, this is a guest episode of On the Outside podcast, which is all about sharing diverse views and voices on the UK outdoors culture. The episode uh, that you're about to listen to is all about the UCI Cycling World Championships 2023, which took place in Scotland in August, and specifically talking about access, inclusion, and of course, all the action that went down. Sharing our opinions and experiences are Neil Russell, uh, founder of the Adaptive Riders Collective, Vidangi Kulkarni, endurance cyclist, adventurer and writer, and me. Uh, I was involved because I was uh, on the in-venue MC team at Innerleatham for the mountain biking cross-country events. Uh, so it was a really amazing experience on the ground there. And the On the Outside podcast, this episode included, is produced and hosted by Francesca Churaskis. So listen and enjoy. Hello and welcome to On the Outside, the podcast sharing diverse views on what's happening outdoors. It is Francesca Tarowskis back here again, and I'm pretty excited about this conversation because it was something that I only found out about fairly recently, which we'll talk about why that might be the case as well in a moment. Uh, but we are going to be talking about the Cycling World Championships, which took place up in Scotland in August. We are in August, so it was earlier on this month, but this will be going out a bit later. So uh, last month, for those of you that are listening to this. And I have a, a great panel as well for this one. I'm so glad that everybody was able to get on a call. I was really worried that we wouldn't be able to. Uh, but we have a couple of people that you will be familiar with if you know the show. Neil Russell, we're going way back to the first episode and saying hi to him again. Vidangi Kulkarni, who's been on a couple of episodes with us, including the uh, Peak District, Kinder in Colour and that kind of thing. And Eva Glass, who does the Spin Drift podcast and is also part of the Outdoors Podcast Club, which is how I know her quite well. And yeah, you all have fantastic knowledge on this and I have none. So I'm looking forward to this. I'm just going to get you to do a few more introductions just so people know kind of where you're coming from. Uh, Neil, can we start with you? Yeah. Hi there, everyone. Um, my name is Neil Russell. Um, I am the Managing Director of the Adaptive Riders Collective based up in central Scotland. And we help people with disabilities and people from all walks of life really um, get out doing off-road cycling using adaptive off-road equipment. Um, we also work with events to help integrate adaptive riders. And yeah, just we've been running for about a year now, so we're growing very quickly, lots of good things happening. Um, and just hoping to see things continue to grow and having the UCI World Champs here up in Scotland was a, was a great thing for us last month. Fantastic. And um, Vidangi, can you give us a little reintroduction as to uh, how, how you fit into the cycling community? Yeah, of course. So I'm Vidangi. I'm an endurance cyclist uh, and adventurer. And I run a business called The Adventure Shed, through which I plan and manage adventures and expeditions and um, sometimes lead. Um, <laughs> and so my aim is to sort of help make adventures and outdoors more accessible through practical knowledge and experience, I guess. And I'm also actually organizing mountain bike races 
So my next one is coming up um, end of September, 30th September and 1st of October. It's at Forest of Dean and um, yeah, it's called MTB for All and all cyclists are at all levels are welcome. Um, and yeah, we do have a category for adaptive riders and we've got like eight people signed up. Super excited for that. Um, and yeah, like I was absolutely stoked about downhill world champs that were just down the road for me from me so they were in uh fort william and yeah can't can't wait to chat more about it <laughs> fantastic thank you and Eva. hi i'm Eva. Uh, i run the spindrift podcast and my background is in mountain bike journalism although that's not what i do currently um and yeah for me the cycling world championships was also basically in my town for the uh, cross-country mountain biking races um it was amazing to see the crowds and play a tiny tiny part in the excitement that was going on with all of that and um i've always been passionate about increasing awareness of different voices and stories within cycling which is why I set up the Spindrift podcast. It's something that I want to focus on, but it's also something I've always tried to do as well through my professional career. Yeah, fantastic. And obviously you mentioned the Spindrift podcast there, and that is literally how I found out that the World Championships was a thing. <laughs> so not being in the cycling community, um, I, I feel like it potentially hasn't reached as far as it should considering what a big thing this seems to be. Would any of you like to give a little bit of an intro as to what the World Championships was and, and why this was such a big thing for Scotland and for cycling in general? Put you on the spot there. Eva will go for it, yeah. Eva will go for it. And I think you were doing a little bit of comparing at the Championships as well, Eva. So this is a, a good chance to plug that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like a lot of other sports around the world each discipline of cycling and there's lots of different types of cycling has its own world championships they normally happen discipline by discipline in parts of the world different times of year this time for the first time the UCI which is the international governing body for cycling decided to have nearly all of the disciplines together for one mega world champs so it happened this year that was the cycling world championships in glasgow and across scotland so fort william and the tweed valley as well and it had everything from mountain biking and track cycling and road cycling to i'm going to get some of the names wrong bmx freestyle bmx park artistic cycling which looked incredible but i didn't get to go and see it um so for cycling it's kind of like the equivalent of the cycling olympics and it's the idea is it's going to happen every three years going forward and yeah it was huge but as you said perhaps not as huge as it could have been or should have been yeah and uh, you mentioned some of the disciplines there and I um, said on one of our minisodes a couple of weeks back before the championships happened that I was just amazed that some of those sports even existed um, so it was really nice to see it in in kind of like a similar platform but yeah I didn't I didn't really know about this at all um Having said that, I was impressed to see that some of it was on the BBC there. Aside from that, how could you have, how did people get involved with the championships? Was there like a massive crowd? Did any of you go and see specific events? I know some of them were in your backyard. Um, Vidangi, how, how did you kind of like find out about it and get involved? So 
Fort William is like 90 minutes from where I live. And uh, we know the trail builders there and uh, some of the people who are involved in making the World Cup track better, I guess, for world champs. And yeah, we literally have a season pass to Never Strange, me and my partner. And so obviously we knew that this was happening up here, but I was specifically interested in the downhill and XC side of things because uh, last year I covered XC stuff for single track. And this year I wasn't like doing any MTB journalism for world champs specifically, but because I knew so many people who were involved and I'd seen some of them quite recently. For example, uh, a rider from Fort William who lives in New Zealand called Louise Anna Ferguson. I met her at um, Mega Avalanche a few weeks before the world champs mm. and um yeah she was super stoked about it and then you know when you know someone who's doing it like knowing like even Michaela who was part of the world champs and like knowing people like Greg Williamson who's from Inverness and just knowing people who are from the area who are doing that like suddenly you're super invested in it so yeah like that was the thing with downhill world champs at least and then obviously another thing of sort of obsession was that they've done so many changes to the world cup track for the world champs and i was super stoked to see what what they'll have done like you know everyone was saying the track is 20 seconds quicker and everything so where (laughs) where are these 20 seconds coming from how are the jumps bigger and like honestly all of that process was just so exciting um so yeah that kept me hooked and that's why like way 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 in advance i had my tickets for that and yeah there there was never a doubt that i was gonna go for it i was absolutely there (laughs) i i love that and you can just absolutely hear like you can hear how stoked you are and for uh people listening as well but just like so animated talking about it you can feel (laughs) the energy coming from her uh but that does give a little bit of an idea as to the fact of um if you're in the community it feels like this is something which you've known about for ages and for people that aren't in the community and like me and maybe a little bit slow with some of the acronyms there mtb mountain bike i got that one uh what is cx cyclocross so, oh, but okay. xc is yeah. cross country oh so that x is for cross oh my, well, that's just doubly confusing. Now. I, I hope okay. so. I hope the X is like, <laughs> I, I've only ever seen like XCC and XCO. Um, and I was like, oh, like why a short track XCC? Yeah. And I, I can see why Olympic distance is XCO. But yeah, yeah. if anyone knows, please, please let me know. I'm not going to Google it. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say that makes me feel a little bit better that even you're getting a bit confused because there's so many of these sports like climbing is the same where I'm just like, there's, there's jargon that I'm just like, I need to get this picked up on because I I don't know. But yeah, thank you for that. And uh, Neil, I'm going to come over to you now as well, because you were actually involved in a slightly different way. And hopefully from fairly early on for knowing what kind of role you played, but I'm not certain if that's necessarily the case. No, Um, it was great to be um, involved um, and sort of engage with the the champs in in a couple of different ways. One was... um, being invited to do a little bit of consultancy work on some of the sites and looking at the accessibility. It was an interesting opportunity because it was nice to see the UCI and, and then the event um, planners want to engage with um, you know those who would be utilising the sort of accessibility considerations that were put in place. Um, so 
I went to Glasgow Green, where there was some of the, the BMX and sort of flatland, and um, I'm not really sure, again, of, of, of the terminology, but um, there was the trials bike stuff there as well. It was good. It was good to go and see it. Um, there was a lot of really positive considerations put in place, which were really good, and also went to Knight, Knightsbridge, Knightswood. Nicewood in Glasgow. <laughs> um, I'm terrible at getting that name right. Uh, but yeah, going to have a look at where um, the, the BMX was set up as well for the, the racing and have a look at kind of yeah accessibility issues and things like that there. And yeah, you know, like I say, it was a positive thing. There, there's some good stuff there, but also I think there's definitely things to be learned from it, which is brilliant for the future. And if it is going to be something that's happening every three years, hopefully some of these considerations um, you know, will be remembered and um, they'll think about open event planning for the next one. So so it was nice to have that sort of professional involvement through Neil McKenna brought me in and that, which was lovely. Um, and yeah, it was a really good experience and opportunity. On the other side of things, I'm not a big spectator of any sport and never really have been. I always enjoyed taking part in sports, but I've always found it a little bit tedious, a little bit boring watching. But I've got to say the UCI champs changed that for me massively. Um was lucky enough to get some tickets to go to the velodrome one evening and that was mind blowing. I absolutely loved it. The atmosphere was fantastic. The seats were pretty much sold out, um, which was great to see. And one of the things that that was um very much a new thing that they did for the champs was the integration of para um events and the mainstream cycling events. So you would have all the track events going on and then you would have, you know, um, men's and women's and then you would have some of the para events and then there would be another um, you know, non-disabled event, which was really good to see because you share the crowd and you share that atmosphere and that energy. And I just thought it was it was really good. One thing I did not know was that they pump hot air into velodrome, so when you go, you start sweating the minute you walk in the door um, <laughs> as a spectator. <laughs> I got very, very lucky. One of the New Zealand um, road coaches was standing next to us and he explained a lot of different things to me. He was telling me how hot air um, is faster air for riding, which I was like, oh, oh I never knew this. Um, so I wore, you know, a light grey cotton T-shirt and not the right choice for going to something like this. <laughs> um, but it was great to see all the events. I was, my mind was blown by some of the para-athletes, you know, um, single leg um, amputees riding without a prosthesis and double leg amputees riding and double arm amputees riding. and and in the same you know category with their classification or same race sorry with classification it was just amazing to watch i'd never heard of uh, the madison race before i didn't know it was a thing and that for anyone who's listening that knows what that is they'll understand why you know my head exploded about watching it <laughs> about 50 riders or so i don't know that exact number on the track at one time in pairs on, grabbing on each other's hand track. And, on the track and they grabbing each other's hand and slinging each other into corners and <laughs> you know there's 120 laps and every 10 you have a sprint and there's points and I was like I have no idea what's going on um but it was it was great to watch um so yeah being able to spectate it really did actually show me that there are other disciplines of cycling that um are really interesting to watch and and uh, made me want to think about you know maybe actually in the future paying a bit more attention to cycling events and what's involved and the other thing i would say that was quite like i say it was great to see the para events um fully integrated which is an interesting one because actually 
yes, that's a very positive thing, but it also has mixed opinions. There are people who feel that the integration of para events within the mainstream dilutes the the identity of the para movement and and, and para athletes, mm. um, which I can understand that logic. But I think for me, it certainly seemed to be like a really positive thing, especially with the sharing of the crowds and the sharing of the energy and bringing para events to the forefront so people can see it. Um, you know, I think para events often get lost. You know, they're often like after, um, you know, like Paralympics is after the Olympics and the crowds dwindle, people aren't watching as much. So it's good because it's very much with the work that we do at ARC. We want people to see what's possible. We want people to go, oh, I might be interested in doing that. These are things I can do. So that was lovely to see. I think that was a really big plus for the event and and well done to UCI for making that decision. But yeah, it was good. It was good fun. Yeah, I mean, it sounds really good. Uh, and I am going to do like a little self-plug there for anybody that is interested in um, learning a little bit more about the para movement and that kind of thing. I actually worked on a podcast called Equal Two that was all about the Paralympics and the movement that has come out of that because it is a, a big cultural thing mm. for disabled people. Uh, so do go and check that out. I'll pop the link in the show notes for you. And I'm absolutely astounded. Did you say the Madison yeah, so it's the, the Madison, and I got the full history lesson of it yeah. to be doing with Madison Square Gardens. It's like over 100 years old, <laughs> okay. this race. Um, and I think it used to go on for something like 12 or 24 hours. And it was when cycling was viewed more as entertainment and almost like on par with like, you know, like circus events and things like that. It was a really different. Yeah viewpoint but yeah the, the, the madison was it is it, it's you know historically really interesting i went straight home and googled it and like was reading yeah. all about it on wikipedia and it is it, it, you know it's it's, it's sort of a, a race that seems to have stuck in some form and, and has that because i mean looking at it you're like this is not a race that i imagine someone <laughs> would come up with now especially with that kind of almost danger of that physical contact with each other and having yeah. to grab hold of each other and you know you get some pretty pretty dramatic crashes and stuff in it but yeah great to watch terrifying but great it sounds kind of like the grand national of cycling that's mm. how i'm imagining it in my head that, that, <laughs> that's a pretty know. good analogy that's yeah. a pretty good comparison yeah <laughs> Oh, I love that. Thank you. That was a, that was a really good insight into like how it was as a spectator and also the yeah, the the kind of like I was going to say adaptations or the integration mm. um that's gone on there. Beautiful. So Neil mentioned a little bit there some of the things that could be improved in future events. And obviously, this was a massive undertaking from the look of it. So there's always going to be aspects that went really well and aspects to learn from. One of the things that I found really interesting, and I actually uh, found out about this when I was doing my, I was doing my research, I was doing my research for the show, uh, is that there were some issues with visas for some of the top athletes. Now, this is something which I know, Vidangi, you have quite a lot of experience and opinions on. So to give a little bit of context for listeners, uh, I actually found out about this from the Cycling Podcast. And they said that it was one of Africa's top cyclists, I think, uh, Biniam Gourmet. Um, yeah, was denied a UK visa to actually come to Glasgow and couldn't compete essentially so that was the the one that i know about uh vidangi i'll come over to you initially and just say is that something that you knew about 
within the context of the worlds did you know that that was happening in the the big competitions there or any particular so i didn't know about this until i saw a story that someone had made about it and it was actually very very um distressing because um yeah, I know the sort of documentation you need for a non-EU citizen to enter the UK. So I hold an Indian passport and um, yeah, like for for a long time now, anywhere I go, I've needed visas. And it's interesting. Um, so to, to get into the UK, you need something like, you know, an invitation letter, a proof of your finances, um, your insurance, and then like where you're going to stay. Um, and then how you're going to get places within the country. Um, mm. And then if you're from certain countries, you need a guarantor. And, you know, that means like someone who takes responsibility for you whilst you're there, basically. Um, and, you know, your return tickets and, yeah, all of those details. But basically every single little detail of what you're going to do, where you're going to be within the UK, you need to submit that stuff. And for top level athletes in their countries to not, get those visas it blows my mind because it is a matter of pride that uk is getting to host that that scotland's getting to host this and the fact that there are people who won't be able to join just because of their nationality and that there couldn't be exceptions made for certain documents you know that couldn't be provided or whatever i'm sure mm -hmm. everything was provided but sometimes the time scales are also absolutely crazy and you need to be interviewed and stuff so yeah it's it's really distressing to know this because yeah like that that could have been easily someone i know you know mm. Like this has happened to some people I know from India as well, where they have tried to get a visa and it's just gone declined uh, because it wasn't a student visa or wasn't a long stay visa. It was just a visit visa. And yeah, some of the details were inconclusive or whatever. Like they just need an excuse to say no to visas these days. Like mm. it's absolutely nuts. And so it just kind of blew my mind mostly because it's a matter of pride for any country to host world champs. and. The fact that you're not welcoming towards certain countries is just, yeah, not okay. Yeah, like I, I don't, I don't get it, and it was, it was really distressing. And there are, um, there are agencies and stuff. So in certain countries, there are agencies that look after your visa process. Mm. Um, so you know, like for example, for me to apply for a Schengen visa, I need to go through VFS Global. So there's companies like that in different countries who look after the process and sometimes it is those companies fault but more often than not it's the fact that these companies are submitting the passports and everything to the embassy and then the embassy is taking their sweet time not mm. looking at the fact that okay this person is actually an elite level athlete competing at world champs or doing something incredibly important in that other country they're not looking at that they're just looking at it like Oh, it's just another applicant and so they'll take their sweet time getting to it and then to sort of provide that stamp that gets you in the country i also read somewhere about someone from one of the african countries getting detained at the border and really? that was again like crazy like mm. you, you know how are you detaining someone who's come in with the right visa to compete at world champs 
you know, like how many things do you have to prove in order to just do the sport that you're so good at? Like, I don't know. It kind of gets me a bit riled up. But yeah, that's what I've got to say on the topic, I guess. It didn't even cross my mind that that could be a problem with the world champs in the UK. I just assumed that, of course, as world champs, everyone's going to get the visa. Everyone's going to be able to make it. Um, So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, th- thank you for that. And thank you for going into some of the details there that like the, the documents, just that list of documents to begin with that you have to like tick the boxes to get those is already astounding. And like you say, this was something that was also mentioned on the cycling podcast that whether there should just be a nice, easy application for things like this, where if you are bidding for hosting events like this, there should be something within the political system <laughs> of the country that is hosting that should uh, should allow easy access for athletes because, as you say, it becomes an embarrassment. <laughs> it's embarrassing that this happened, essentially. And that's that's obviously coming from the, the point of view of somebody that is, you know, just a part of the country that was hosting. But like you say, for athletes that now can't compete that can be really distressing and upsetting and potentially career changing if you can't get there. So yeah, thank you for giving a bit of information on that one. There's, I mean, there's so much we could go into in terms of the politics and whilst it does get into politics sometimes with this podcast, it's not a political podcast, so I won't say too many of my opinions. But yeah, I think that's definitely something which needs to be taken into account. Eva. Well, just on the completely the opposite end of the spectrum, I think one of the interesting stories that I heard about some of the things that were happening on the ground with the cross-country mountain bike world champs races, which were here in the Tweed Valley. And there were a few stories of some of the riders that had made it. And I think when you think world champs, you're assuming that these races, you know, races from around the world have like the full support of their their government or their local sporting governing body. They've got like funding and all the rest of it. And actually quite a number of riders came almost entirely self-funded or on very, very low budgets. Mm. So they don't necessarily have like a full, like when you go to a mountain bike, a, a cycling race event, there's usually like a whole team of people behind the riders and the races providing like support, mechanical support or feeding them or providing accommodation. So all these riders have to do, races have to do is think about is is racing. Um, mm. But not everybody has that. And one, it would be great to see that change. Um, but two, one of the, some of the nicer stories that I heard around the world champs was communities on the ground coming together to support those riders. So we heard about some local bike shops providing mechanical support for the races, mm. people coming together to cook for them so they didn't have to worry about finding food, people ferrying them around between venues so they didn't have to worry about that. And I think one of the things that I loved about this event, and it you know it wasn't perfect, it was great, it could definitely be better, Um, But one of the things I loved about it was the people on the ground from the communities and the volunteers that helped run the events that came together to to make it as good as it possibly could be. People were so willing to help people, help the races and help the 
the spectators have a good time. And I think that was one of the warmest, happiest things that I got from from being around the events, being around the World Championships. That was one of the things that made me the happiest. Yeah, that's that's really nice. Thank you for giving that side of things as well, because it on the one hand, I just go, it shouldn't have to be people on the ground that are stepping up. Yeah, absolutely. But on the other hand, it is nice to know that people are still there to step up. People are there as part of the community and helping to kind of like make that something that's really, um, yeah, yeah, kind of like community aspects to it. Another another thing I listened to when I was doing my research was talking about the essentially this legacy that this might have for Scotland and potentially the UK in general. I don't know whether to go down this route now simply because of the face that Neil is making. But um, I, I would be interested to hear a little bit in terms of any other local aspects that you know trying to get people into cycling that maybe weren't into cycling before and this kind of thing are there any aspects with that that you you all have seen as well i think it's um definitely an area that when there is the next champs i think that the legacy has to really be considered a bit more um i think yeah first time hosting you know world champs in one country and it was a really big thing there was such a potential for for a lot of legacy from that i have to be honest that i'm not entirely sure i see where that legacy is going to be or how that's going to happen i i think that it's an idea that that there's there's room for plenty of improvement for next time because there should be um, a huge legacy of this a lot of the like the bmx act for example uh, it's temporary. It gets taken down afterwards, you know, mm. and that, that things like that. That's a shame because that could have perhaps been integrated into the planning better. Where the result being, you know, this this small BMX track that exists already, having this you know international level track built next to it, could have stayed, and it could have been mm. a really positive legacy um, afterwards. And I think that there is, you know, it's great to see elite level cycling. Elite level cycling is brilliant for watch and it brought a lot to the country a lot of tourism a lot of money a lot of good things come off it but for your average Joe your, your person that is just a commuter or, or wants to get into cycling and stuff like that they need to look at this and go what's my pathway into cycling and and, and how does the, the the legacy help that happen so you know funds available projects running I think there were some um, and I think unfortunately a little bit like the overall champs it wasn't. It hasn't been marketed enormous, or hasn't been marketed perfectly. You know, there could be great things that come off it, but we're just not hearing about them. We're not knowing about them, and I think that frustrates people. I know that locals, and will always be the case. Ten days of, you know, interruption to their use of their roads, and mm. and you know, making the challenges. People are always going to get annoyed with that if you can offset that. With, but these are some of the really positive things that will come from it that will be lasting. That can help appease people a little bit, and I just don't think there was enough of that going around to help ease it for people. So those who were non-cyclists, there was quite a lot of negativity about it as well. And they're like, "Oh, bloody cyclists!" You know, the hendies and all this stuff. And you're like, oh, "I think that, that the legacy should be that work with the communities actually, mm. and helping them see that the, the positives that can come from such an event like this." 
I I don't know all the facts. I don't know all the details. I do know that some of the legacy funding was actually being spent before the event to sort of like inject some money into projects and stuff like that. Again, I personally haven't seen the, the, the fruits of that. I don't see where that money really went. I don't think there's been an awful lot about that at community level. So, yeah, I think that's definitely an area for improvement for the next time they're running this, wherever that is. That's something they really want to probably get right. <laughs> Mm, that's uh i mean it doesn't surprise me that much because your your story there about the community uh just made me remember the 2012 olympics i was actually living on the cycle route mm. and the cycle route literally enclosed my street and we didn't get any warning to say that we wouldn't be able to leave our flat on the days that the <laughs> the cycle route was running <laughs> I just kind of like woke up and went, oh, I mean, we get a really good view, but I can't go and get milk now. So <laughs> that doesn't surprise me that much that there's a few aspects that on the ground are just not managed. And I suppose kind of like opening that up, I have I have two questions actually on the back of that. Obviously with the Olympics, I know bids are put in years in advance, right? Like decades in advance. Do, do you know when this was kind of agreed that it was going to be in Scotland? How long have they had to plan for this? I heard 2018, but I'm not sure if that's correct. I think that would match up with about what I heard, but I don't know specifically. I think mm -hmm. I was hearing rumbles about it happening about three years ago, but mm. I'm assuming it was probably decided before then. And then we had COVID in the middle of that, so I imagine yeah. that, you know, delayed things and changed things. Yeah, that's quite a long period of time to, to mm. get an event up and running. I think one of the things that was tricky, this like you're saying, Fran, about like road closures and stuff, was that the information was available on like your local council website, what those, what roads were going to be closed and when. What I don't think enough of was like that information was, you know, that was there if you went looking for it. That information needs to be put in front of the people that it's going to affect, yeah. whether that's things going through people's letterboxes or whatever it is. Because, again, you've got to think about the fact that not everyone is interested in cycling, not everyone's necessarily using social media or the internet. We have you know various groups within society that might not engage with that kind of technology very readily or easily. So you've got to take that information to them. Um, certainly if you're going to disrupt their routine and their day-to-day -day life for, for up to 10 days. That's something that's got to, I think, be addressed. Mm. And, and we've seen through things like COVID that we can do that, right? So we've got the text messages, we've got the massive campaigns for COVID safety and COVID vaccines. So it just needs a little bit of investment to that kind of thing, you would assume. <laughs> You'd hope. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I mean, we've got, I mean, I'm, I'm, hopefully most people have experienced this, but we've got like a local cycling race that comes through here, Tour of the Borders. And they always, you get a leaflet through the door and it tells you when it's happening. They tell you how long it's going to happen for during the day. They tell you the route and they say, you know, if you need to get out, this is what you need to do. Because otherwise, how would you know to look for a cycling event that's going to happen if you don't follow cycling or know that yeah. there's... So, yeah, I think it's a lot of paper. Not so keen on that, but it does mean that you literally get it delivered through your door yeah and like I, sp I suppose that kind of just goes to show actually that a local cycling race can do it so 
as with a lot of things, the bigger bigger companies need to have a bit of a bigger picture idea sometimes, maybe. I think one of the things that made the UCI tricky as well was that it wasn't um, event plans like by one central company, from what I gather. I believe that it was mm. each location went out to different event organisers mm. and that meant that there was differences in kind of how much information was shared. There wasn't continuity um, across the different organisers. Oh my God. <laughs> I will be back. <laughs> No, no worries at all. Come back to that. Vidangi, is there anything that you would like to add on this aspect or is there anything else in particular that you'd like to bring up that we haven't touched on yet? About the sort of, you know, uh, giving people long enough notice um, thing. A lot of people, including my neighbours, actually, they're like in their 70s or something. And one morning they're doing something in the garden and we were about to leave for, well, seeing the world champs. But we were, you know, leaving slightly later because it was only practice day. And they were like, oh, like, what are you going to Fort William for today? And then they were like, wait, so you're saying there's a big race. Does that mean I shouldn't be uh, driving anywhere on, you know, so-and-so date? Mm. And I was like... Oh wow, like unless you're into cycling, you really do not know that. And um yeah, I definitely spoke to many, many angry Fort William locals about this who didn't know there was an event happening and there were tourists who showed up, uh like big tourist buses. So again, this is something that should have been known to tourist companies which often come to venues like Fort William to use the gondola and go up. And mm. we had the ones that usually like come to Fort William. They were still showing up on the practice day, on the like uh, on the on the on the uh, quality day and stuff. So there's already a massive queue, and these tourist companies were not told that there's a big event happening, and so they are showing up. And now the queue for the gondola is like double than what it should be. It went all the way to where the motorway jumps almost finish, where that wall is. That's how long the queues were. And it shouldn't have been that way because the tourist company should have known that, you know, and it was clear that the people there who came with those tourist companies didn't know it either. And um, yeah, that was a sight to see, really. And that makes me think as well, when you were saying with your neighbours, I was speaking to my parents about this and they said, oh, this seems like a really big thing. We haven't seen it even on the news like none of the news channels seem to cover it. So there there does seem to be a bigger thing in that it hasn't been picked up as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Seems to be a lot of things integrated as to where where communication fell, essentially. I think that yeah, I think that was the same with like the accessibility stuff as well. Like, you know, the sites were aware that they were gonna have people with, you know, accessibility needs um, coming to their site. So there's some, there's some good stuff. But I think and one of the things I really hope to come from it for future is that you think about accessibility um, at the inception of the event planning, not after. Because if you put your accessibility, I mean, I bang on about this. People have heard me talk about this in other areas a million times. <laughs> but if you put, you know, your accessibility in at the beginning and build your event villages around it, it works. When you realise afterwards, oops, we need to make sure that things are accessible, you're jamming it in where there's no space for it. And mm-hmm. now, unfortunately, from some of the sites that I've seen and some of the things I've seen, was the case. 
and it's frustrating because that then doesn't make people feel as welcome because they think oh you know it's, it's just an afterthought or it's a tick box and it's like don't do that you know of course i'm always going to advocate for that side of things that's the area i work in but i really think that they've got to do this stuff from the beginning and i think they need to bring in the right kind of consultants and value the consultants that have that knowledge that lived experience because we went to sites where they're like oh we've got disabled toilets and you're like okay where are they and you had these toilets where if you were in a power chair the door wouldn't shut because there wasn't enough space to move and the opening of that door is facing out into the main thoroughfare so that you've got lots of people walking past you had prayer spaces which is fantastic mm. um, really great that they had them but there was a step about 30 centimetres to get into them. Mm. And you're like, mm. you know, you're trying. you can't you're be trying. more than one diversity well, that's area it. You're, you're point, not allowed. Right? <laughs> you've got to pick, pick which team you're on. Yeah. Um, and you only get one team. No, it is. It's, you know, when you're finding out that these things don't quite work two days before events start, you don't have an awful lot of time to actually resolve it. So it's good that they had thought about putting multiple disabled toilets spread out about site village. That's good. But there's other bits of detail that really need to get people in early to see and, and, and have their input to make sure it actually works. It's not always as simple as we'll put a disabled toilet and that's it, you know? So I, I'm hoping that that's again, something for the future that they say, let's think about that stuff right at the beginning. And that is going to make your athletes, your para athletes who are there and your spectators that have accessibility needs feel welcome and actually included and thought of, um, which is I think is really important. Needs to happen more. So I don't want that to. And I've said this before. We even started. I don't want it to be like a bad mouthy thing because actually I think the UCI overall was a positive thing, a fantastic thing. But I think we've just got. There's always going to be room for improvement, and hopefully that is is carried forward. I think I've saved that enough times now. Aoife did you speak about your um sort of emceeing experience no I didn't but does anybody want to hear about that I want to hear about it I want to hear about (laughs) that I think that would be quite interesting okay cool so another way I was involved and I was so excited to do this um, was uh, on the on the ground MC team for the events at Glentress. So that was for the cross-country marathon, short track, relay and Olympic discipline events. So that was basically across the whole week. Um, it was really full on and it was incredibly exciting and a slightly nerve wracking. So essentially... In venue, there's also a team of people that work to make sure that everyone who's spectating in the venue, you know, has a really good atmosphere. And I was on that team. So there were two MCs, two commentators who sit in a booth. And there was myself and Lauren McCallum from Protect Our Winters, where they're kind of roving MCs. And we kind of wandered around site with a floor manager and a cameraman. Uh, Stu, the cameraman, his name was, he was great. And we would have little segments to do. So whether that was geeing up the crowd or providing a bit of context, standing at a particular part of the track as the races came through, um, uh, telling people like what to expect. Um, so a lot of my role was saying stuff like, Glentress, are you ready? Which was <laughs> fantastic. We'd have in-ear headphones. And so someone would say, okay, we're going to come to you guys. We want you to 
talk about the riders that have just come through this part of the track and crowd up and then the floor manager would give us a five four three and two and one would be silent and then we were live on the screens around the venue uh, and we'd have to do our bit and it was brilliant it was yeah initially nerve-wracking but then oh my god there's nothing like the buzz and the adrenaline of it um and also like you know having the crowd react when you say something like that is it's kind of cool so yeah i really really enjoyed that i'd love to do more uh so yeah it was uh it was really good fun different different to podcasting <laughs> yeah i can only imagine if you can't edit out what you're saying uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> definitely it seems like you smashed it though because I, I was following you on socials that week and you're getting a lot of uh a lot of people feeding back on you yeah and seeing was, skills so oh thank you it was yeah i really enjoyed it and i think also being able to I love interviewing people. So being able to do a few on the fly interviews with people in venue was probably my favorite part of that. Just chatting to the folks from World Bicycle Relief or from Trash Free Trails um, to get that other perspective of what goes on behind the scenes and into making an event like this happen. And like hopefully the wider implications and opportunities of such an event. Fantastic. Thank you. So the last thing that I want us to just touch on today, and it follows on a little bit from the idea of the, the visa issues for some riders, is the fact that the UCI changed its policy on, in their words, the rules on the participation of transgender athletes in international competitions. And this came in just before the World Championships. Um, so I, I have to say, like, this is something which I think all of us on the show today have we've not got personal experience we've not got expertise in this but I just wanted to read out a little bit about the the policy change there and essentially on the 5th of July the UCI said that from now on female transgender athletes who have transitioned after male puberty will be prohibited from participating in women's events on the UCI international calendar in all categories in the various disciplines. So this obviously affected every discipline in the world championships. And there are stories that I've read and articles that I've read about how Again, this was communicated. This was something that uh, a lot of athletes actually found out from the public announcement rather than actually hearing it themselves or hearing it from trainers or hearing it from personal communication and that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't I don't have I have a lot to say on this, but I don't know if it's my space to say on this right now. Uh, but I will say that it is something that is very interesting as to the time that it came in. And it does feel like it was put in knowing that the world championships were coming. And yeah, I would essentially love to hear from any listeners that know a little bit more on this than myself that have been affected either personally or have been affected emotionally by this. And yeah, I, I would I very much didn't want to have this conversation and this topic without actually touching on that aspect of it, because I think it's quite important, whether you are into the sports or not, to see that this kind of thing is happening. And it, again, again, 
it's not just cycling. Around the same time, we actually had a, a few different policies. I think British Rowing had something put in. And uh, the one that blows my mind, chess, seems to think that there is an issue with transgender women being in women's categories. Um, and that kind of thing, the, the vastness of the sports that it's affecting does go to show the the excuses that are being used aren't necessarily accurate, in my personal opinion. That was obviously a whirlwind tour of a very big event. And thank you all for coming and giving me a little bit of insights into your your kind of like connection to it and this kind of thing. The links to all the stories, podcasts and people we talked about in this episode will be in our newsletter, including a couple of stories we didn't manage to get in. If you don't currently get our newsletter, you can sign up by heading to ontheoutsidepodcast.co.uk forward slash newsletter. You can also find links to all our past newsletters and episodes by heading over to our Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the outside podcast. None of the links on our Patreon are behind a paywall, but all the money we get from our Patreon does go towards our panellists. You can see how much we're currently getting on that page, and I think you'll all agree that our guests are worth more than that. So if you are in a position to support us financially, I know that our panellists would appreciate it, and my pocket really would as well. A massive thank you once again to our panel for today, Neil, Aoife and Vidangi. That was a really great conversation. Thank you. This episode of On the Outside was produced, hosted and edited by me, Francesca Tarauskas. On the Outside artwork is created by Sophie Nolan. Music is Bass Beats by Alex Norton. Anesu Matanda Mumbingo is our social media assistant. And you have been our listener. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the special episode where we shared an episode of On the Outside podcast. If you would like to listen to On the Outside, I, I totally recommend it. It's a really great uh, podcast. It's available on all the major podcast platforms and you can also check out their website, on the outside podcast.co.uk. So definitely give that a listen, give it a subscribe and show them some support. And for our Spindrift listeners, we have some great interviews and episodes coming up. So don't forget to tune into those, spread the word, and in the meantime, happy riding. Mm-hmm.